All right. Um, let's start. I think that room really is going to be uh, too small. So unless you are all horrified and we get a reasonably sized class for Thursday. Um, so this is um, a class on... It's not clear whether we should call it a class on um, the philosophy of film or um, what film says about philosophy um, or what. That is, um, whether this is going to be um, what ways that you can think about film which are philosophically inflected or ways that you can think about philosophical issues um, because film actually makes you um, think differently about philosophical issues um, than you would have before the age of film. Um, ideally, it's both, um, and um, there'll be a kind of back and forth um, between what film has to say about philosophical issues and what philosophy has to say about cinematic issues. Um, I tend to use the word movies rather than film or cinema, um, and uh, I think you should too, but um, whatever you want. Um, so, but in a sense, um, it shouldn't matter too much. Um, ideally, um, the main thing the course will do, um, or the least that the course will do, is get you thinking about certain philosophical issues and get you looking um, more deeply into movies, and that's, those are both good things. Um, for whatever you want to do in the course, um, you can take, um, if you need to, either perspective. That is, um, you can decide that you're interested in these issues for philosophical reasons and take a philosophical perspective on the movies. Um, or you can um, decide that what you really like are the movies, and if um, there are some interesting philosophical ideas that the movies help you to understand better, um, that's, that's uh, swell. That's great. Um, so there isn't a particular thing, um, a particular direction um, from start to finish that... Um, this course is assuming you can start with philosophy and go to film. You can start with film and go to philosophy. You can be interested in both. You can't be interested in neither. I mean, you can, but then you shouldn't be in the class. Um, so, um, so both those ways of thinking about this are ways that we encourage. By we, I don't mean just the royal we, um, although I do mean us. Um, but I also mean Matthew, stand up and introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Matthew Strapp. I'm a TA for this course. Um, I'm a graduate student in English. And you have office hours? Oh, I don't have them set yet. I will email you soon when oh. I get an office assignment. Okay, so um, Matthew and I are both people you can come to and complain about the other if you need to. Um, and uh, talk about papers and issues like that. Right now, there's a tentative syllabus up on Latte. It's pretty much what the syllabus is going to look like, but it's always going to be tentative because I always want to be able to um, change things as necessary as um, our interests become clear as where um, what you guys want to talk about, what you guys are interested in, um, evolves in the course of the course. But essentially, there are going to be two papers, and um, I think an in-class final. Do you all prefer in-class finals? Yes? No? You don't care? You're happy to stay here till like, mid-May, waiting for the final and studying and studying? 
just papers. You want, you don't want an exam at all, is what you're saying. Well, uh, I don't mean to sound optimistic. It just seems like it'd be film. It's lots of books. You know, reading performs are best written about in some ways because you're you're not using your own thoughts. Yeah, that's true. Um, there would then, in that case, have to be quizzes, though, because there ha there is encouragement to keep up, and it's really easy. It's in a in a funny way easier to fall behind in film courses than in other courses, because in other courses you can convince yourself that you can um, catch up by reading quickly, and then at least you skim. Um, but it's harder to skim here. So, would people prefer a final and in class final? I assume no one wants a finals period final. Is that right? Does anyone want one? Speak now, forever hold your peace. Too late. Okay. Um, so would people prefer an in-class final or um, several quizzes? Uh, what do you? <laughs> yes. Okay. What do people think of a take-home final? No. Uh, okay. So here are the choices. Um, okay, first of all, final, whether in class or take home versus um, several quizzes. Who wants some version of a final? <laughs> okay, who wants several quizzes? Um, everyone else is abstaining? Who's abstaining? <laughs> all right, we'll decide later. Um, what else can we do? We'll decide later. Um, that's part of the tentativity of the syllabus. Um, all right, whatever it is, it's the idea is just um, enjoy the movies, enjoy the reading, um, and um, you know, take an interest, take an interest, take an interest. Um, so, um, could you hand these out? I don't know if we're actually going to get to this today. Um, but basically, the question. Um, that we could ask that, that um, we're starting with in the class and that they're, um, I guess I have to do one other housekeeping thing, um, which is that um, ideally you should try to watch the movies Tuesday nights um, with your classmates. Um, film, unlike television, and this is um, something that is actually um, been interestingly theorized about, um, Movies, unlike television, are until very recently, that is, until the coming of video, um, made to be seen in crowds. Um, there's a, actually a fairly large historical difference from the 1950s through at least the 1980s in the way um, television um, producers, producers of television shows, that is creators, um, impresarios of television shows and um, producers, creators, impresarios of movies um, went about their craft. It's a completely, not a completely different art, but it is a different art, the art of TV and the art of movies. And the difference has to do with who's sitting next to you. Um, and not only who's sitting next to you, but maybe even more important, who's sitting three or four seats away. Um, movies, um, one obvious difference between movies and TV, if you know anything about TV until fairly recently, and even now, um, although less so, is that movie comedies 
don't have laugh tracks, and TV comedies do. Um, there's a reason that movie comedies don't, which is that um, the laughter, or there's a reason, I mean, the, the standard thing to say is that there's a reason that TV comedies do, that you're watching a comedy and you hear laughter and then um, maybe you laugh yourself, which is that it's a replacement for the fact that you're not in a large crowd um, watching a movie um, and watching a movie comedy. And so um, it's generally, people don't tend to laugh alone. Um, sometimes you will a little bit, and sometimes you'll even notice that you're laughing. But one problem is that if you notice that you're laughing, you kind of feel like, this is a little weird. Here I am completely alone, and I'm laughing. Um, and then you get self-conscious, even though there's no self except your own self to be self-conscious in front of. Um, so if you've ever had that experience, um, that's um, an experience that TV makers have to deal with when they're dealing, when they're doing comedies, when they're dealing with comedy. The idea of a laugh track is supposed to sort of make you forget that, make you not hear yourself laughing because your own laughter is um, just part of the general sound of laughter. And that general sound of laughter is something that other people in movie theaters um, will be giving you if they're laughing as well. So one obvious distinction between making um, shows for TV and making shows, shows that will appear on the big screen is in the big screen there are other people. A lot of those people are strangers. Generally, you watch TV with people you know. You will probably go to the movies with someone you know, but also with lots of people you don't know. Um, and that experience of being in a crowd, many of whom are strangers, um, is very much a different experience from being at home um, in a place that's familiar to you and with people um, whom you know and um, either like or don't like, but whom you know. Um, so the, what happened in the 80s with the coming of um, VHS, beta um, videotapes, and then eventually with the coming of DVDs is the difference between um, making movies for movie theaters and making um, movies for screens and the difference between what TV makers did and what movie makers did started getting, started lessening. Um, but a whole lot of what we'll be interested in is um, the difference when it's a big difference. So this is just a way of saying why, if you can, you should try to see the movies Tuesday nights with your classmates. If you can't, um, and I've said it's okay for people who have econ recitations or whatever, um, most of the movies, all the movies should be available on Latte. The movie that's... Um, that we're showing tonight, which is out of the past, isn't up yet, and I'm trying to get the library to pay attention to me, but you know what the <laughs> library's like. Um, but you should, um, if you can't see it on Latte in the near future, it is available streaming, but not um, that cheap from Amazon. Um, it's not on Netflix, but it is on Amazon. Um, and I'm sure you with your BitTorrent talents can figure out some way, some other way of watching it. But at any rate, tonight is out of the past. It's in Mandel. It's at 6.30, right? Um, and what out of the past is? How many people have seen it? Um, all right. Well, it belongs, we'll talk about it more on Thursday. It belongs to the genre called film noir. Um, film noir is a kind of detective um, crime sort of film 
that was named film noir by the French audiences, French critics, who saw these strange and unexpected American movies um, the first time they were seeing American movies again after World War II. So what happens is in 1940, France falls to Germany in um, World War II, and American imports are um, as, uh, of movies as of other things um, stop coming into France. Movies are especially anathema because they're regarded as propaganda against German and Vichy and French and occupied French interests. Um, in the meantime, um, in this very dark period of world history and of American history, um, American movies are getting very dark, unexpectedly dark, especially American crime movies. And um, when um, the French critics saw the American movies that they'd missed and saw what was happening now in Hollywood, at the end of the war, um, they said that these movies looked very dark to them. They liked them. They thought they were great. Um, that they looked very dark to them, and um, they named them film noir. There's more specifics about why precisely that name, but noir means black or, or dark. Um, so these were very dark films. Um, Out of the Past is um, a very odd and interesting film noir. It's one of the great achievements of black and white cinematography. Um, the cinematography, the camera work is spectacular. Um, and it's uh, the movie that made Kirk Douglas um, famous. Uh, he's a co-star in it, but it was really his breakout movie. Um, you may know him as the father of Michael Douglas, but um, you really should think of Michael Douglas as the son of Kirk Douglas. Um, and um, it's one of Robert Mitchum and um, Robert Mitchum's great, great roles. And um, Jane, Jane Greer is wonderful in it. And it's a pretty dark movie, but um, done in pretty bright lighting. Um, that's one of the interesting things about it. So that's what's going to be shown tonight. Um, it's really wonderful. And as I say, if you can't come tonight, um, it's going to be hard for you to see it through Latte, at least for um, a little while. I assume that eventually they'll get it up. Um, so if you can't come tonight, um, try to watch it either on Amazon or through whatever channels that I can't know about um, that you can watch it on. Um, so what this means is try to go to the screenings with others if you can. Um, if you can't, um, you know, there are workarounds, but try not to use the workarounds to work around. Um, all right, so the question about what film and philosophy have to do with each other, um, which in one way or another is what this course is going to be about, is a question that has to be first and foremost about what it means to perceive a world. That is, what movies give you is a window, but is it a window, on a world which is not the world that you're in? Um, the question, is it a window, that at first seems, well, of course it is. What you're looking at when you look at a movie screen is you're looking at a rectangle, um, at a rectangular, flat, surface which shows you a place where you are not. Um, that is also arguably and probably easily arguably true about two other art forms. On the one hand, theater, 
where we sit in an audience and we look at a stage from which, very famously, what is missing? When, you, when you're in a theater, the fourth wall is missing. Anyone know who said that, who used that term first of the fourth wall? Dennis Diderot. So that's an 18th century term. Diderot is one of the great figures in the Enlightenment. Um, and he was the one who said that what you get in theater um, is you're looking, at a world, you're looking at a world, you're looking at a place, you're looking at a room um, where the fourth wall is missing. It's missing for us. It's not missing for the people on stage in general. So it's a one-way absence. That is, we see them. We're sitting in the audience and we see them, but they sitting or standing on stage generally, not always, but generally, um, the characters do not see us. Um, two characters can be alone in a play even if there are 300 people in the audience watching the two of them be alone. So um, the fourth wall and the idea that what we're seeing through is something, is a barrier that is a surface that's flat and that has somehow become transparent to us a barrier more or less like a window, then that's something that we see in theater is the transparent fourth wall, you could say, the one-way mirror, one-way window, which the fourth wall turns into. The other art form where we see a world where we are not is painting. That is, in painting, what we're doing is looking at something that is generally window-sized, um, is sometimes an actual landscape, so it's as though in looking at a painting, we're looking out a window. It's sometimes a window not out of the room that we're in, but a window into another room. So in both those cases, in theater and in painting, what's happening is we are in our space, in the space that where we live, where we are, um, and we are looking Elsewhere, We're looking into another part of the world. Um, and also, and this is um, where things get interesting, the fact that we can do that means that there's a certain discontinuity in space that is generally the only part of the world you can look at is the part of the world you're in. But when you look at a painting of Venice, let's say, and you're in Waltham, or a painting of Waltham when you're in Venice, which who wouldn't want to go see? Um, when you're doing that, you're looking at a part of the world which is not the part of the world you're in. So that something from the start, from the start of representation, from the start of picturing, something from the start starts scrambling in, the, in our relation to the space around us. If we're looking at paintings of historical events, paintings of things that we know about, paintings of mythology, not only are we looking into another part of the world, which means that we're not quite in a familiar world, again, because in a familiar world you can't do that. You don't have far away vision, which is literally what television means. Vision afar, vision that is far away. 
But also, if you're looking at historical scene, something is happening to time. That is, and this is true perhaps preeminently in photography, where what you're looking at is something in the past. So when you look at a photograph, a news photograph, whatever, um, look at the photographs of the Kennedy assassination or of Kennedy arriving in Dallas 50 years ago, um, you're also looking at another part of time. So our sense of a world in a lot of ways has to do with our perspective, our place within that world, and what the word within means in that formulation is the place along the continuous unfolding of space and time that we find ourselves in. And what representational art, especially pictorial art, but not only pictorial art, um, what representational art does is it makes that space a little bit choppy it makes that space a little bit discontinuous. And so what happens is we're seeing something where we're not. Um, we may, once sound comes in, be hearing things that are not happening then. And we're also seeing things when we're not um, and hearing things that um, are not happening then. So someone is looking in. But now he's going to wait. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, So I'm really interested in um, the way that gaming, and particularly modern gaming, comes into this. Um, one of the things about games as opposed to um, movies and plays and paintings is how much you can exercise your will in order to determine what your experience is. That is, um, the interactivity of gaming um, is something that is great now that it's doable. Um, it's a fantastic thing, except to the extent that it kills people, which it will occasionally, um, because they forget to eat and they don't forget to um, get too stimulated. Um, but um, one of the things about perception in general is that perception isn't passive. Perception is always active even in the simplest sense, which is to say you decide what you're going to look at. Um, you hear a sound and you turn to see where that sound is coming from. Um, in movies, uh, you don't get to decide what the camera is going to show you next. You don't get to decide what you see next. You can look, you have some choice as to what, ha as to what part of the screen you look at. And something that I'm going to show us in a few minutes, you're going to see a really interesting way that that, um, that can be um, played with. You have some choice, but you don't have the same kind of choice. And you don't have full choice ever. Um, you may crane your neck and still not see what you want to see, even in real life. Um, but in gaming, you have a whole lot more choice than you do um, in things that are presented to you um, the way movies have to present things to you. 
So the question of the relationship of our own willing um, and our own effect on what it is that we perceive, in a way, games are returning us back to a much more real interaction, um, no matter how fantastic the game world is and how unlike our world it is. Our interaction with the world in a game, in some very deep sense, can be much more realistic. Um, and I think that's, that's one reason that people use the word realistic um, about games. It can be much more realistic than our interaction with a filmic world. Um, one way, we'll have occasion to talk about 3D, and one way that this um, comes up is the odd and interesting way in which 3D movies actually seem much less realistic than two-dimensional movies. They're supposed to be more realistic, and, um, but depth actually messes up um, our, our, um, the illusion that movies can offer. It doesn't destroy it, especially if the 3D movie is well done but it does mess it up. Um, so these are definitely issues that we'll talk about. How many people are gamers? Um, all right, maybe we should get Brandeis to buy everyone a console and <laughs> World of Warcraft all day, every day. Okay, um, so, you know, this is actually stuff to think about for a paper, if you want. Um, it's, it's a very interesting issue. Um, has anyone read Neuromancer, the uh, William Gibson novel? So Neuromancer has um, an idea. Neuromancer is, uh, William Gibson was the person who coined the term cyberspace. And uh, Neuromancer is really what the Matrix is a ripoff of. Um, and Neuromancer is um, about entering into a completely virtual space and dealing with artificial intelligence and, and um, artificial intelligences, um, some of whom are really very interesting indeed. Um, but there's an idea in Neuromancer which is called SimStim, which is that you get to experience um, the world from and through the body of someone else. Um, so they're really so lots of people pay for porn SimStim. That is, um, they get to enter a really athletic body and have sex with um, the really desirable people of their choice in the um, entering whatever body um, has the gender that they want. Um, and there's, um, towards the end of Neuromancer, the hero um, has to, um, his leg is broken, but he gets into a Simstim rig so that he can um, be with the heroine as she's exploring a space station. And so he's in her body looking through her eyes, all of this through, a, through a, being jacked in through a virtual reality rig. He's in her body looking through her eyes and um, having her experience, but he's not having her thoughts or desires. And what that means is that she hears a sound, and um, because she's familiar with the place, she knows what that sound is, but he doesn't. And because he feels like he's in her body, he moves to look at the sound, except she's not moving. And so he exercises his will. What's that sound? And he wants to go like that. And every his brain is saying, turn to look. But her brain, which is controlling her body, is interested in something else. And for him, that's, a, that's and for us also, it's a very jarring experience. And so the question of how you deal with a viewer's will, how you deal 
with the audience's will when it's the audience that's experiencing the illusory world. Um, that's a very deep philosophical <coughs> issue. So what we can say philosophically is that we are confronted um, in all these media um, from, let's say, silent movies or even from theater and paintings to games. We are confronted with questions of space, time, perception, continuity, and will. Um, and confronted with them in ways in which it's very um, intuitive to see how these things become issues for us, in which um, there's no really hard reconstruction that we have to do to figure out what space is, what time is, um, what willing is, and so on. This is, um, we're really good at watching movies. It's a, a very, very deep and central part of our culture. Really good at watching um, DVDs, really good at watching TV, decently good at gaming. Um, and all of this is a really deep part of our culture, something that we can handle, um, but something that um, nevertheless isn't part of our biological inheritance, but is rather something that makes use of biological facts about us and psychological facts about us and makes use of facts about um, at least what space, the appearance of space and time to us, the way we interact with space and time, um, makes use of it in a way that we can then be brought to focus on those questions of space and time, how space and time come together to form a world, what a world would mean then to us. Um, so those are the kinds of philosophical issues that naturally arise from movie going. That is to say that um, if you think about what the experience of going to the movies is, if you think about what the experience of a movie is, um, you're also thinking about philosophical questions. You may not know they're philosophical questions, um, but they are. And part of what we want to be doing in this class is being a little bit more explicit about that, um, a little bit more explicit about um, what, again, I'm going to add one more category now, what space is, what time is, what will is. So those three things can come together into a single question, what consciousness is, that is consciousness of the world in which we um, live or think we live. Um, therefore, what a world is and whether a world is something that really exists or not, um, what a fictional world is. You all know um, Descartes' um, worry that everything that he saw around him was a dream that um, the world around him was an illusion, a hallucination. Um, the name of this worry is skepticism. How do I know that this table, it's always a table, even though it's not, that this podium really exists? How do I know that I'm not dreaming this? How do you know that you're not dreaming that you're sitting here right now? And how do you know you're not about to wake up and find that you're alone um, on the moon, as in the movie Moon. Um, how do you know that that's not the case? 
Um, films bring up that question just as much as dreams do. Um, they may answer that question in a way that dreams don't. So those are all issues that come up. Then another issue that comes up is the question of what about your shared sense of the world that you're in? How much does it matter to your view that um, of yourself, of reality, of the outside world, that there are others in that world, that there are other minds? Um, that comes up in movies because in some very um, obvious sense, um, a sense not true of plays, although perhaps true of paintings, um, when you see characters in a movie, you're not seeing people with minds. All you're seeing is light on a screen, and yet you're reacting to them as though they're real people. Unlike on stage, where the actors pretend not to see the audience, in a film, the actors really don't see you. If you start booing actors on stage, you can get to them. If you start booing actors in a movie, it does you no good at all. Um, so this question of the, what our relation to others is, um, what our sense of our knowledge of them, of what they're thinking, their knowledge of us, of what we're thinking, um, this is brought up in a peculiar and new way once you get to movies, once we're concerned about the fates of um, figures who are only pixels or only projections. Um, were their hands going up or, okay. So these are the kinds of things that we're gonna be um, thinking about in the course of the class. One thing, um, I'm gonna put some reading this up on Latte. Um, the, right now the syllabus is weak um, by week, but it's probably going to be too much to read for Thursday, so I'm going to put them in the order that you should read them, and, we, and our discussions, basically what a week will mean in this class um, is going to be um, Thursday and Tuesday. That is, the week will start Thursday and end Tuesday, and then Tuesday evening there'll be a new movie. Yeah? Um, I did. Um, but so far there's nothing on it except the syllabus, but I did do it. Um, all right, so it, does everyone have a copy of the page of Zimmel? Um, I think I didn't make quite enough, but you can share. So Zimmel was um, a sociologist, one of the founders of sociology, um, and a philosopher um, who died, I think, in um, 1918. Um, so he was the last part of the 19th and first part of the 20th century. Um, we're going to read, do people know who Walter Benjamin is? Sometimes pronounced Benjamin, sort of. Okay, we're going to read um, probably his most famous essay, which is the work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction um, for this week as well. Um, Zimmel was his teacher and um, one of the people that um, Benjamin um, modeled himself on. Um, so Zimmel has a series of essays about modern life, and in particular about the coming of the city. Um, one of them is this short essay, um, which I've given you the first page of, called The Stranger. Um, and Zimmel is unbelievably brilliant and unbelievably original. Um, and I wanted us to look at the 
opening of this essay because even though he's not talking about film, he is talking about space and others in a really interesting way. So um, he just begins, Simmel is also one of the most um, amazingly um, fast writers. He's very, very um, quick to just fill you with extraordinary ideas. He can do it um, in two sentences of Zimmel um, are probably worth three or four articles by um, um, a normal PhD, if there are such things, which is dubious. Um, and um, he's just amazing. So take a look at um, The Stranger. Um, it begins, if wandering is the liberation from every given point in space. Um, and here he's just giving, that comes out of nowhere. It's a pretty amazing first sentence. Um, but the idea is that um, we know what nomads are. We know what wandering is. We know what it means not to um, have a fixed abode. Um, from history, we know this. If wandering is the liberation from every given point in space, and thus the conceptual opposition to fixation at such a point, the sociological form of the stranger presents the unity, as it were, of these two characteristics. So what he's going to argue is that in modern times, in the times of large cities, there's a new kind of human um, characteristic, a new kind of human um, way of being in the world, which is what he calls the stranger. The stranger presents the unity of wandering and fixity, is what he's saying. Nomads wander. Um, farmers, for example, are fixed. They um, stay in their farmhouses. They watch their fields. They build walls around their cities to protect them from nomads. But then there's a new kind of figure, the stranger, the person you don't know, the person who is not fixed as the person, you know, your neighbor, um, and yet is a person who is there every day. That's the experience of the city for Zimmel. So the stranger presents the unity, as it were, of these two characteristics. This phenomenon, too, however, reveals that spatial relations, and I just want us to stop and end this reading today with this sentence, then I want to show you a couple of things. Um, this phenomenon, too, however, reveals that spatial relations are only the condition on the one hand and the symbol on the other of human relations. So just let that sink in, that spatial relations, that is the fact that human beings relate to each other in space. Well, the way we relate to each other in space is symbolic, and obviously this is true um, even more so in artful representations of human relations. The way we relate to each other in space is symbolic of the way we are relating to each other as persons. That is, um, if someone turns her back on someone else, that says one thing about a human 
about the human relationship between them. If they're face-to-face, that says another thing about the human relation between them. So the idea that spatial relations are symbolic of human relations, that's an idea that's probably true in all pictorial art. In order to read a picture from a Greek vase to a graphic novel, you have to be able to see what's going on from the postures and attitudes that people take towards each other. Are they looking at each other? Is one drawing up and looking down at the other? Are they turned away? Are they um, looking, are, are they turned towards each other? Are they approaching each other? Are they avoiding each other? So spatial relations are symbolic of human relations, but they're also the condition of human relations. That is to say that without space, we as human beings, it may be that there are angels, as in Dante, who can relate to each other without needing space, but we as human beings, we relate to each other in and through space. Space is where we live. Space is what puts us outside of each other and therefore makes us interested in each other, um, makes us interested in getting closer, which is a word that's both geometrical and emotional, or more distant, another term both geometrical and emotional, from each other. So that idea of space as both the symbol and the condition of human relations, that's something to keep in mind throughout the course of the course, both condition and symbol. That's what any movie maker who is at all thoughtful about characters as being human or anthropomorphic. Um, You know, Flick is as human as anyone else. Um, Andy is as human as anyone else, even though he's a a doll. Um, Any movie maker thinking about human or anthropomorphic relations is going to be thinking spatially. Um, And anyone thinking interestingly about space is going to be thinking about what conditions in human relations space makes possible. We talk about people being alone, that is, in a space uninhabited by others. We talk about people being together, that is, sharing space together. Um, That is something that Zimmel is going to work out through the category of the stranger um, and something to read for Thursday. Um, The thing about movies, and this is what makes them different, and again, where Zimmel's idea, again, not talking about movies, but applicable to them, Um, The thing about movies, unlike painting and unlike theater, is that it's not at all clear that the metaphor or analogy of the window makes sense when you're talking about movies. And the reason, there are two basic reasons. Movie cameras move. So it's especially after around 1934, you will almost never see a movie which is shot from a single unmoving camera. 
um, movie cameras are always moving, and the history of the technological development of movie making is the history of giving cameras more and more possibility of motion. Um, it used to be that, um, especially in early sound movies, that because movie cameras were so loud, they had to be isolated from the set that they were filming. Movie cameras were extremely loud at the time, and the lights had to be very bright. And the lights were really loud also. If you ever walk past a street light and you hear a buzz, that's what movie studios were like. They were just, just roaring buzzing of lights and of these very loud cameras that were the machinery of movie making. So you had to do a lot of soundproofing. Um, for the cameras, that meant they were isolated in, sound, in very thick-walled, soundproofed boxes. And that meant they couldn't move when you shot a scene. So if you look at early sound movies, silent movies, it's not an issue because silent movies, you're not recording sound anyhow. But in early sound movies, early sound movies represented a huge regression in what um, cameras were doing. Early sound movies were much clunkier. The filming was much clunkier than the silent movies that had been made two or three years earlier. And that's because the cameras couldn't move. Then the history of the technology was figuring out ways to make cameras lighter and quieter and more fluid in their motion. And the history of movie making is the history of cameras able to do more and more. So unlike in a painting, unlike in a play, where we're seeing what we see from a single fixed point in a movie, the camera moves. And we're presented with a moving picture of a world in motion. When you talk about motion pictures, and movies are short for moving pictures or, mo or motion pictures, when you talk about motion pictures, it's not only what's in the picture that moves, like in Harry Potter, um, but it's also the, um, the perspective on what's in that picture moves as well. Cameras move. That's the first difference. The second and even more important difference is that in movies we get cuts. For some people that is the defining aesthetic fact about movies, is that our perception in movies is discontinuous. That you're seeing something and suddenly in slam cuts, for example, you're seeing something and in the next frame, in the course of 1 24th of a second, you're seeing something completely different. In smash cuts, excuse me, in smash cuts, you're seeing something completely different. Um, cuts in movies, that's an absolutely new aesthetic experience, the idea of the cut, the idea that you're seeing something and then seeing something else. And handling cuts, handling how you go from stretch of continuous representation to a different stretch of continuous representation. Um, that is the great artistic innovation and the great artistic skill required of movie makers. But that, again, is interestingly will mess up space and time. Okay, what I want to see, how many people know who Christian Markley is? Um, so he, um, I'm going to show you a clip from this. Uh, it's badly done because uh, all clips from um, 
this um, artwork of his are illegal. Um, so they're on YouTube, but they're, but they're basically pirated, people taking their cell phones to the artwork. The artwork is called The Clock. And what Markley did was he, um, it's quite an amazing thing. If you ever get a chance to see it, you should. They have tours from time to time. It's a 24-hour installation. And what Markley did was he took clips from, I think, five or 6,000 different movies. Every clip um, has some timekeeper in it that tells you what time it is from um, the time of day, between noon and noon. That is, the, um, from 12 noon to 12.01 to 12.02, etc., to 12 midnight, to 1 a.m., to 2 a.m., um, all the way back to noon again. So if you watch the clock for 24 hours, and no one does except Markley himself, um, it's really hard to do. Um, but if you watch the clock for 24 hours, what you will be able to tell every few seconds is what time it is, uh, because it's synced with the time of the place where it's being shown. So the clock is always started at noon, um, and what you see on screen is that it's noon, and it always ends, it always cycles 24 hours later. So you never have to look at your watch to wonder how much longer, because the movie itself will tell you. So what he did was he got clip after clip after clip after clip from um, 6,000 different movies. Or I think it's actually fewer movies, but 6,000 different clips, um, and spliced them all together and it's a continuous depiction of time passing as represented in movies in which time matters, um, scene after scene after scene in the movie. Before that, and the first thing that I want to show you is a, is a whole film by him. We're not going to be doing lots of experimental films, but uh, we will do this. Um, is a whole film by him called um, Telephones. So this is going to take me a second to pull up. Um, the, but Telephones is a seven-minute film, and it's really interesting. Oh, shit. Oh, well. Pardon my French. Oh, I know how I can do this. Um, um, about phones in movies, which is why there's so many fo phones in movies, is a question that we're going to talk about as well. Um, All right, talk amongst yourselves for about two minutes. Talk, talk, talk. <coughs> Pretend to talk. How about Yeah, well, not this. Let me just get the... Uh,
got a two-step um, login. Um, so even though I sent myself the links. So we'll do this first. Um, is this it? Yeah. Okay, so you can turn it on. Um, let's make sure it's sound. Yeah, okay. Um, so this is um, a short movie of Markley's, seven and a half minutes long, called Telephones. It's not like the clock, um, but it is um, him splicing together a whole bunch of different clips, and it's just interesting to see um, what happens when you splice clips together the way it's done. Um, so, do you know what they're on the screen, okay. Sometimes. Switches, he uses switches. Okay, uh, Matthew, if you hit play. Do you guys mind the double screens? That's a problem with this room, but we could do, I think we could use one screen if you want. Can you clear? Okay, go.
Um, lights. Thumbs up or thumbs down? <coughs> Two thumbs down. Um, I, I think we'll do what we'll do is we'll do the uh, look at the clock on Thursday. But let me ask you about this. Um, besides thumbs up or thumbs down. This is, by the way, not going to be just a lecture class. So here's me asking you. Um, what was your, your response to it? What more did you want? Yeah. What's your name? Matt. Um, it seemed, at least to me, that it seemed to show that a lot of, at least, telephone scenes that don't seem to share a lot of common sort of thematic or structural aspects. And when they're put together in this way, you start to notice how there's certain tropes that repeat themselves constantly throughout the film at hand. Right. So what are some of those tropes? The long silence, you know, uh, sort of tentative picking up the person coming to the telephone, running to the telephone from a distance. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there's the, yeah, running to the telephone. There's the eager um, pick up the phone because you really want to know what, what's going on. There's the surprise phone call. Yeah. Something's always wrong. Something's always wrong. Yeah. Um, phones don't ring unless there's a problem in movies. I mean, they sometimes do, actually. The one place they do, or let me ask you, where do phones ring when there's not a problem? What kinds of scenes, and he doesn't show any, I don't think. But what kinds of scenes are um, phones ringing not going to be part of the plot? When they're part of the like the setting, like it's a, I don't know, um, like a big business or something, all the phones are always ringing or something like that, or it's a telephone call center, Wall Street or something like that. Right. Yeah. I think, um, and this is something that you'll see Robert Warshow say, um, having the phone ring all the time can be a trope, to use your word, um, showing that someone's an important person. Um, that is, the phone's always ringing, yeah, no, sell, no, buy, play, play, play. Um, so in those cases, um, all, the all the phone calls mean is important, lots of people want to contact this person. But if the phone is part of the plot, um, it's always going to be a change in the plot. Something important is going to happen. Um, sometimes it'll be because the phone rings. What else will happen with phones? I mean, there are two basic things that happen with phones here. The phone rings and people pick it up, or, yeah? They drop them and they get lost. <laughs> they drop them and they get lost. Um, yeah, that, and those are often comic scenes. Um, yeah? They dial Yeah. Or they're the ones doing the dialogue. Um, so sometimes it's, I have to reach someone. Um, it's really important for me to reach someone. The, the most famous movie about that is Sorry, Wrong, Sorry, Wrong Number. Um, I have to reach someone, and um, usually, if you're going to see the whole phone call going, um, it's going to be tense. Do they reach the person they're trying to reach or not? Um, if they reach him, will they get what they need to get? So the act of dialing is itself an act of petition of some sort. The other possibility is that the ringing phone will interrupt you. Um, what's going on with the acting? in scenes with telephones. Yeah? Well, for me, I, I didn't find suspend disbelief as much as all these scenes, right? Right. But I've noticed that, like, like, there wasn't a, there was rarely, like, I would think realistic kind of making sure they get the right number. So I was like, bram, 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 bram. So that's it looked like they are just doing the same number. <laughs> but I have a feeling I probably would never notice that if, uh -huh. I was, if it wasn't in these little clips like that. Okay, yeah. So one thing that, that matters is there's no way in most cases that the actor has to care what number he or she is dialing. 
um, in most, although not in all cases, in most cases, um, even if we pay attention to the number that they're di dialing, um, you know what numbers are always dialed now, by the way, if you hear a phone number, what are, what's the exchange? 555, yeah, because it's not a real number if it's 555. Um, so there's, um, but we don't pay much attention to the numbers they're dialing. Um, did you count how many digits they were dialing? Did you find yourself doing that at all? Um, you can actually get a history of movies by seeing how many digits people are dialing. So the first scenes here, a lot, there were a lot of six-digit phone numbers. Um, and then as we got to more modern times, especially in the color movies, they were seven-digit phone numbers. Now we have 10-digit phone numbers, but that's really only over the last 10 or 15 years or so. Um, I guess about 15 years that people have had to dial 10 digits. Um, you knew that, right? That about 15 years ago, if you were making a local call, it was only seven digits. Um, you didn't have to dial area code if you were dialing in your own area. Um, it's like dialing at Brandeis where you only have to dial um, five digits. Um, so you can count the number of digits. The number of digits is going up. Um, sometimes they're dialing, sometimes they're not. But what else are actors doing when they're on the phone? Yeah. Yeah, um, it's not, yeah. Uh, I was just going to say, it's cool because phone calls are so private, even more so than like face-to-face conversations, especially in the context of a movie. Not with the NSA, but yeah. <laughs> but like, in this uh, scene, the audience is so keeping aware that they're like acting, the actors are acting the phone call conversation. Yeah. Like, they're just so private, it's just... Yeah. So in the context of a movie, you probably wouldn't be aware of, it, aware of it, you wouldn't be thinking of it, but watching the same um, gestures, the same um, um, stereotypical changes of expression, of impatience, of horror, of relief, um, that's another good thing that he does is he has the same emotions, he'll have three or four clips with the same emotions, and with actors doing the same emotions. It's a little like the aristocrats, all those comedians doing the same joke. Um, here it's actors doing the same emotions. Oh, thank God you're safe. Oh, yes, it's you. Oh, it's you. Um, over and over again. And of course it isn't. So we become aware of the way Markley is doing it, um, that there's actually no one at the other end of the line. How many people wanted to know what, what was going to happen next? Yeah, I think, what, I think your experience of this, at least mine, the first time I saw it was, at first, I wanted to know, and in fact, for some of these, I do know because I've seen the movies. Had, did anyone recognize any of this from movies they'd seen? Um, what, what do you recognize? Goldfinger. Goldfinger, good, um, with Sean Connery. Um, what do you recognize? Clerks. Which? Clerks. Clerks. Clerks, yeah. Okay, good. Matt, what you? Uh, I just saw. movie existed, I just didn't know Okay, so, yeah. Oh, wasn't there? I didn't notice, but, yeah. Which is, which is a phone movie, right? Which one? North by Northwest. Um, certainly Vertigo. Um, not sure about North by Northwest. But, uh, the Birds? The Birds? Maybe. Um, yeah. Yeah, rear window. Yeah, um, which we're going to watch soon. Um, your hand was up too. No. Um, 
Does recognizing the movie help or undercut your sense of wanting to know what will happen next? That at least is a question you can ask yourself. What about, um, let me ask you this question, does Mark Lee cheat at all in doing this? And um, let, I'm not going to tell you what I mean by cheating, um, but just um, ask yourself, is there any cheating in what Mark Lee is doing? What, what cheating did you say? So like he juxtaposes one scene against the next, meaning you can like see the specific details that are unique to each situation. Or like, for example, when everyone's hanging up the phone and the one person's just like, shut up or whatever she said, it kind of like points out that one detail and kind of highlights it compared to every other one that you can see more than that. Okay, so what he'll have is um, four or five generic hangups and then one that comes out and stands out against this generic background. Um, and in a way, you could imagine that, that every actor doing this generic scene, um, because it's going to be a generic scene for an actor. If you're a movie actor, you've done this a lot, but each time you want to do it in a way that the audience will actually say, wow, that's cool, the way they did it, the way that actor did it. Um, so Markley isn't just picking scenes that he's treating even-handedly. Um, some scenes are framing others. Um, and that's what, that's what film editing does, and I think he does, um, he, he makes that an interesting part of this little experimental film. Do you notice any other cheating? Yeah? When they all listening to the same conversation. Yeah, so um, when in the set of people listening, which is going to be a kind of actor's uh, paradise, that is you're conveying everything through expression rather than through body language or, 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 or verbal expression. This is, again, a huge difference between movies and plays, is that in movies we can see faces in a way that um, stage actors cannot and do not count on us seeing their faces. Um, so what the actors are doing is they're just holding something where they're hearing nothing, and they're making their faces um, convey what it is that they're hearing. Um, that's something that actors love to do, um, is just by the expression on their face, um, you're supposed to get what it is that they're hearing. Um, but what Markley does is he has the same, we can just barely hear it, um, voice coming over the phone for four or five clips in a row. So the sound, so he's cheating with the sound. Um, the sound there is not taken from each clip, but there's a continuous sound from the last clip that he puts in the three or four previous clips. Um, and uh, you notice it, did other people notice it? Sort of. Um, yeah, if you watch it again, I'll send you guys the link on Latte to this. If you watch it again, you'll notice it. Um, first, it's the sound of the voice at the other end of the phone. It's a kind of female voice berating. Um, the person listening, and um, but that in a way suggests another way that this is a mosaic of scenes. You can have the same female voice berating four different people, and they'll look right responding to it. You wouldn't be able to tell, except that the last scene is so perfect, you wouldn't be able to tell which the um, legitimate, where the voice um, should legitimately be. Then after that, there's a hubbub through four or five clips, and it's the same hubbub through four or five clips. Um, and again, we're watching what the actors do, but they're not responding to that hub. So there it does feel a little bit like he's cheating. Um, the question is, 
is that really cheating or not? Or is that, is that part of his point? Or does that just make it a little bit too easy for himself? Okay, tonight, um, out of the past, um, notice how beautiful this movie is. It's um, utterly gorgeous movie. That's what I've noticed. Thursday, we'll um, talk about that. I'll send you some reading to do, and we'll also watch some of the clock. Professor, um, yeah. I still have to officially register for the class. Okay. And it's still a little up in the air if I can because I have eight core recitations during the screening. Yeah.